You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Let's turn to the book of Joshua. Chapter uh, 5 is where we're at. Joshua 5, 10 through 12. Don't have any pictures from last week again, kids. There's open. There's no no pictures from last week. If you want to uh, draw some pictures, you can and and uh, bring them to me um, after service. If I'm talking to someone, you just again just slip it into my hand. I'll see it. Just make sure your name is on it, so I can visit with that person as well. But uh, thank you, kids, for your part. Glad you're part of this service. Good to hear you singing this morning as well. So Joshua five, a little shorter section today. We're in verses 10 through 12. Joshua 5, verses 10 through 12 is where we're going to be at. Let's read, read and hear God's word to begin with. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. Let me pray for us again as we dive into the Word of God. Lord, we just thank you for for this particular section, again, acknowledging all Scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness. We count these verses as God-breathed, inspired, as your very words. And so, Lord, I pray in my perhaps feeble attempt, Lord, to explain and to expound, Lord, that your glory would just shine bright here this morning what the Passover directs us to, the manna, the bread. Lord, that you, Lord Jesus, would be exalted in our sight. That this particular section would, would, would uh, enlighten our hearts to love you more, to worship you. And so guide our time by your Spirit in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a missionary from the the 400s, he began a, a sort of autobiography like this. Here's how this missionary began this autobiography. He says, I am Patrick, a sinner, most unlearned, the least of all the faithful, and utterly despised by many. If you're connecting this to St. Patrick, of whom we're at St. Patrick's Day today, you're correct. But I'm pretty sure, as we talked about in Sunday school, most of the celebrations of uh, today have little to do with the real heart of Patrick in, these, in the 400s. Um, he was a sinner saved by grace. I want you to listen further to his confession um, as he recounts his life at age 16 in Britain. So this is, again, more from Patrick, um, just kind of, kind of an autobiographical way to describe his life, and this beginning here at age 16, he says this, I did not know the true God. I was taken into captivity to Ireland with many thousands of people, and deservedly so, because we turned away from God and did not keep his commandments and did not obey our priests who used to remind us of our salvation. 
And the Lord brought over us the wrath of his anger and scattered us among many nations, even unto the utmost part of the earth, where now my littleness is placed among strangers. And there the Lord opened the sense of my unbelief that I might at last remember my sins and be converted with all my heart to the Lord my God, who had regard for my abjection, that's like his downcast state, and who had had mercy on my youth and ignorance and watched over me before I knew him, and before I was able to distinguish between good and evil and guarded me and comforted me as would a father his son. Hence I cannot be silent, nor indeed is it expedient, about the great benefits and the great grace which the Lord has deigned to bestow upon me in the land of my captivity. For this we can give to God in return after having been chastened by him to exalt and praise his wonders before every nation that is anywhere under the heaven. Patrick was a great missionary to Ireland. Uh, He arrived sometime in my reading around 432 A.D. And his desire was the conversion of pagan Ireland. And yet his own confession states why he went to the nations, in particular, why pagan Ireland. He said, to exalt and praise his, that is God's, to exalt and praise God's wonders before every nation. I believe Patrick had a high view of God that then informed and empowered his mission. In our reading today, where we're at, the nation of Israel, at least at this point, we know they have their ups and downs, at least at this point we see them with a high view of God. So intent on God's ways that they're going to willingly forego uh, charging into this land of promise, but instead they're going to hold a feast of worship in the territory of their enemies. Again, it's kind of like circumcision, and it's tied as part of preparing for what we're going to look at as the Passover. But here they're doing this in enemy land. Instead of charging forward, they're going to celebrate the Passover. So we look into our text here, specifically verse 10. Last week, we a little bit before then, we looked at the ceremony of circumcision instituted again by God himself. Joshua administers this, and they've crossed the Jordan. Here in verse 10, we find Israel still camped out at Gilgal. Presumably, they're healed from their circumcision. And yet, there's there's still, as I said, still no movement towards the conquest, towards the victory yet. They're just still, they crossed, and they're there. They're still on the plains of Jericho. And verse 10 tells us they're celebrating, they're keeping the Passover. So we need to ask here, what's so significant about the Passover, that Israel would delay conquering the land in order to observe this feast. I mean, wouldn't it be better, in our maybe our thinking, to capture these towns? The the people's hearts are melted. Why not just go, let's capture them, and then it'll be a little late, but then we'll we'll do the Passover. Psalm 127.1 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Let me read it one more time. It's so important. Unless the Lord builds the house, 
Those who build it labor in vain. Israel is doing something much more important in this moment than taking over Canaan. They're involved in worship. So we're going to look briefly, heading back to Exodus 12, at this feast of Passover and just just refresh ourselves in this institution of God. So I invite you to do that. Just turn, turn back to the left in your scriptures to Exodus 12. We'll read a, a good portion of this just as it's just helpful for us to understand now Israel, having crossed the Jordan, is celebrating this. What, are, what exactly are they celebrating? So as you're getting there, we're gonna, we'll look at 12 verse 5 just to be exact. As you're getting there, Exodus 12 really gives, I think, the details, the background of this memorial feast to remember just what God had done for his people in Egypt. Israel had been in slavery for some time, I don't, maybe close to 400 years, I'm not sure, on the time, a long time. And, and now the time had come where God is going to deliver them. Moses would, would ask Pharaoh to let them go, remember, and then he refused so these great plagues came upon the land there was blood in the nile there was flies hail locusts all those sorts of things eventually that last plague that threat of death to all the firstborn in the land of egypt except except the israelites who had what on their doors you remember what they had on the doors they had blood on the doors otherwise death is coming to the firstborn of the land so let's pick it up here in Exodus 12 at verse uh, 5. Your lamb, so this is talking about now the lamb to put on the door to select. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Verse 12, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are and when i see the blood i will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when i strike the land of egypt this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the lord throughout your generations as a statute forever you shall keep it as a feast Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days, but what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And then verse 17. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For 
on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. Verse 17 gives us the first reason for this Passover that we're not, they're now celebrating in the promised land. It's a feast to celebrate that God brought them out of Egypt. God had delivered Israel out of slavery. Observe it. This is the day I brought you out. God's the deliverer. God's the hero here. And then jump down to verse 26 and 27. Moses instructs the elders of Israel to select these unblemished lands, do what God instructed, and and to observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And then look at verse 26 of Exodus 12. And when your children say to you, here again, these, these back and forth, when the children ask, what's going on, mom and dad? What's this about? Verse 26, when they say, what do you mean by this servant's service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Here again, it's a ceremony to remember the work of God. And I would say even, in fact, the gracious work of God. God sparing their homes, not sparing the Egyptians, a gracious work of God. But why grace? Why is this a gracious work? I want to just point out a couple passages. You don't need to go there. I'll just read them if you want to write them down. Here, I'm, I'm going to read Deuteronomy 7, 8, and I'll read Deuteronomy 9, 5 through 6. Deuteronomy 7, 8 says this to Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you, Israel, and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God graciously loves Israel. He's keeping his promise. And then Deuteronomy 9, 5 through 6, looks forward to their entrance to the promised land, kind of where we're, we're at now. We're living that out in Joshua. And here's what Deuteronomy 9, 5 through 6 says. Not because of your righteousness... Or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land? But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people." That's what we see in the account of Israel through. They have their their moments of joy and worship, but we see them wandering. As we looked at even last week, they rebelled in the wilderness. And God knew of their future grumblings. And yet Moses, acting, I think, as a prefigure of Christ, mediates between God and the people of Israel. Pleads on their behalf. God's faithful to his covenant that... This was his people. He was their God. So here, God in this Passover, he's a gracious deliverer, not because Israel earned this deliverance, 
But in spite of themselves, God saved them. It's how he continues to operate in every life of every sinner whom he's called. He operates by grace to undeserving sinners like Patrick, like me, like you. So we fast forward then from Exodus 12, 40 years to Gilgal in our spot in Joshua. If you want to head back there where they're celebrating this Passover, here's what one commentator uh, says. Richard Hess says this, the celebration, so thinking now here in the promised land, the celebration of the Passover identifies Israel at the Jordan with Israel at the Exodus and Israel at Sinai. Israel at the Jordan, that's where we're at in Joshua, inherits the covenantal promises of the previous generation. Right? They've been circumcised. They have now the sign of the covenant of God. And so I think there's a sense of a fresh start. The covenant of God was with your father. It's with you as you go into this promised land. They've crossed the river and they celebrate the deliverance of God. And so, like we've alluded to, unlike what conventional warfare, I think experts may advise Israel just stops in the land. And I think they most like, I think they celebrated all seven days of the feast as part of the Passover, this feast of unleavened bread tied together to the Passover to remember and by remembering to worship the Lord, their God. Question here. So was Israel, when they, when they did the, when they celebrated the Passover, were they just being self-disciplined in the moment to celebrate it? Kind of the obligatory duty before conquest. Well, it, it is the 14th and we've got to celebrate the Passover. It's just something we've got to do. And then, then we can go. Let's just get this over with and then we'll get into the real land. Is that what was going on? Here's another commentator, A.W. Pink. He's got quite the last name, but... I have appreciated, if you get your hands on a book by him called Gleanings in Joshua, um, every page is just filled with application, and um, I toy with the idea of just reading his chapter, but I won't do that um, uh, for you. But here's what he says. He says about Israel here, the Passover. He says, there was something far more praiseworthy than self-discipline which marked their conduct on this occasion. They, that's Israel, they had the glory of God before them. They eyed his authority. They had respect for his institutions and acted in faith and obedience to his appointments. What Pink is pointing out is they were acting like the people of God, that God was their God, this God Almighty. He's the only one to whom they bowed. And I think there's a strong sense that this was a time of worship before warfare, a time of obedient praise when the world might say, pounce, they're going to praise. Pink goes on to say this for our day. Try to hear what he's saying here. He says, it is neither the first business of the church to, quote unquote, win the world for Christ, nor of the individual Christian to seek the salvation of his relatives and companions. Rather is it to show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light by our entire subjection to his word. God has nowhere promised to use those 
who make not conscience of obeying him in all things. I try to explain what he's saying. I think what Pink is saying here, it's not the first business of the church to win the world or to seek the salvation. Rather, it's to show forth the praises of him by our subjection to his word. He's saying, I don't think he's saying abandon missions, abandon the idea of making disciples or preaching the gospel to your neighbor or those around you, that sort of thing. I don't think he's saying abandon, but that our first, the first business is that we examine our own lives of worship. Do I worship this glorious God who has saved me? Am I personally worshiping my God, my Savior, before I'm proclaiming him? They're both important. It's not, you know, uh, do this, that. They're both important to make disciples. Go and make disciples. Command of Jesus. As we do that, are we, do we have lives of worship? And by that, are we following God, obeying his commands, lovingly coming under his authority in all aspects where he's pointing us? To abide in Christ, to obey our Lord. I think, hopefully that speaks to each of our hearts that we guard our hearts and look inside and see, am I, am I living out what I'm proclaiming? That's a conviction for me standing here before you and hopefully you coming into this building say, I'm, I'm part of Bethany Church. We believe in the, the death, resurrection of Christ. All these things. Does my life, do I, is my inner life, I know my thought, I know my inside. You know your inside. Does it reflect who Christ is, a worship before going out into the world? Okay. Verse 11. Won't be near as long. Look at verse 11. And the day, we're back in Joshua 5 here. The day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. So after celebrating God's gracious deliverance, they eat. They eat from the land. God is presently providing for his people in the land of promise. It says specifically they ate unleavened bread. Again, this Passover, like talked about, is just part of this feast of unleavened bread, seven-day feast. Saw a bit of that in Exodus 12. Uh, Deuteronomy 16.3 calls uh, unleavened bread the bread of affliction. And as you look back to the institution of the Passover in Exodus 12 and 13, and then also kind of coupled with what Paul in the New Testament, how he speaks about leaven in terms of malice and evil, um, there's really, I think there's kind of two aspects maybe joined together of, of what this unleavened bread represents. Why unleavened? One, I think, represents a cleansing of the things of this world of malice and evil. The leaven in the bread, having staying out of the bread, recognizes a, a departure from the world, a, a cleansing of the things of the world. But it's also a remembrance of the events of Passover. It's You remember eating this unleavened bread, remembering that God brought out Israel from Egypt. And Israel was probably this bread of affliction. I think they were afflicted physically by the Egyptians. They were slaves. And they were afflicted, I think, spiritually living in the pagan land of Egypt. So both ways, this bread represents kind of a the affliction they faced and a, and a cleansing and a reminder of the event. It was a tasteful reminder of God's law that they were his and of his might. There was a time 
when Hannah and I were first married, uh, I think it was a year after we were married, we did a camping trip down to Branson area, Table Rock Lake. We were pretty cheap. We borrowed even a car with air conditioning, I think, to, to make the trip and uh, set up our tent, and it was just raining that day when we set up the tent. And we're going to set up a, trying to start a fire. And just behind us, there's a fella, this nice camper. He's got like his awning. He's just reading the paper. And we're trying to start a fire in the rain and all this. And, you know, you just could feel him watching us, just, you know, looking at us. Somebody graciously came along and like sprayed a bunch of lighter fluid on it. And whoosh, we were going. And that night, if I remember right, we had clam chowder. And I've never eaten clam chowder the same since then. Clam chowder reminds, and we buy it sometimes just to remember, we were so wet and cold and we had such good, I don't know if if you like clam chowder, but it's just, that's a memory. And I think this, you probably have foods like that. You remember certain things. That's that's why we celebrate our ethnic foods, all those sorts of things. I think the unleavened bread was a remembrance for Israel of this time. Even the eating of it, oh yeah, it's not, doesn't have the leaven, doesn't have, it's not risen. It's a different bread. I remember that. That's, this is special to remember God's might. We're, we're his people. We're to be called out as his people. So I think it has maybe that sense to it. And then verse 12 really makes a shift, a shift in the practice from their wilderness wanderings. So I'll just look at, read 12 again. And the manna, it says, ceased. The day after they ate of the produce of the land, there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So this daily provision, daily provision of manna ceases. Some 40 years, God has provided this dew-like substance for sustaining his people. Um, We find it first mentioned in Exodus 16. It's a flake-like thing. This is how the Bible describes it. Fine as frost on the ground. It could be ground or beat and made into cakes. That's what manna was. Numbers 11.8 says it tasted of cakes baked with oil. You might say a modern-day Twinkie. I don't know. It was good for them, and God sustained them. But there was more. There was a spiritual significance, and the SV Study Bible points this out and says this in regards to where it's first mentioned in Exodus 16. The provision of bread, so we're talking about manna here. It ceased now, but what did it represent? They say this, the provision of bread from heaven was meant to signify not simply the satisfaction of Israel's physical needs, but also that their whole lives were to be sustained by the Lord and governed by his word. Let's read that again. The provision of bread from heaven was meant to signify not simply the satisfaction of Israel's physical needs, but also that their whole lives were to be sustained by the Lord and governed by his word. And God had daily bore Israel up. He had sustained them. But now, now here in the promised land, the manna is no longer necessary for God. For he was providing another way in the land of promise, the fruits of the land. And he would continue to sustain his people. But the means change. They change from manna to the provision of the land. The ceasing of the manna doesn't mean God was abandoning his people. His provision was just a different means. Whether it was the manna of the wilderness or the milk and honey of Canaan, Israel's God was presently providing for them, for his people in a land 
promise, which he still presently provides for each of us in Christ. And so mentioning Christ, we want to just lastly make some connections here that Scripture itself makes regarding what we've talked about as the Passover and the true bread of life, thinking about manna in that sense and produce. And so we want to just go to one book, and we're going to go to two places in this book. I want you to turn the book of John. Let's look up two places to connect this to the New Testament. John chapter 1, verse 29 is the first stop. We want to see here Christ as both Lamb of God and the true bread of life. John the Baptist has been interrogated by the priests and Levites from Jerusalem. They're asking who he was, why he's baptizing. John answers that his baptism is simply water, but a greater one is among them. And then verse 29 says this, The next day he, so John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Behold, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Instantly, if we've been studying Scripture and we know about lambs and we know unblemished lambs and we know what they did to the doors, the doorposts of the houses, then there's a connection between the types and shadows, as we've mentioned before, of the Old Testament and the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. The blood of the lamb on the doorpost was now personified and incarnate here on earth. The unblemished land who would suffer and die and whose blood would save sinners. His death for the sinner in place of substituting in their place. Jesus is the true Passover lamb. And then go just a little further in John to John chapter 6, verse 27. We're just connecting. We're just making this jump to the New Testament, connecting some things here that were shadowed here in the old. John 6, 27. Here we're entering then a back-and-forth conversation between Jesus and the crowd with whom Jesus, Jesus had fed this crowd uh, with the boys, we're in the boys' five barley loaves and his two fish. And then Jesus says to the crowd, verse uh, 27 here, you can read more around this. I'm just selecting this part. <clears throat> he says this. Um, I'll back up. Verse 26. Jesus answered them, this crowd that came to see him, Truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They liked bread. They liked this provision. He says in verse 27, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then he said to him, Oh, then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Just as Israel celebrated the Passover in the new land, and God continued to provide for them with the produce of the land, so ultimately, dear brother, sister in Christ, our God has abundantly provided for us in the very bread of life, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who being in the very nature of God, became a servant who was unblemished from sin and who willingly and by God's sovereign plan bore our sins on the cross, bearing God's just wrath that we might be cleansed by His blood. He redeemed us from slavery in sin. We're justified by faith in Him. Our faith looks to Christ. Not faith that looks to our faith, but to Christ. And He gives us His Holy Spirit, who now does what? Who bears fruit in us. The fruit of the Spirit. And so we have fellowship with the Lamb. Paul says in the letter to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 1, verse 9, he says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We're called into fellowship with the Son of God to abide in Him as we talked about in Sunday school. So do you share the same conviction of Patrick, first off? Patrick, a sinner, the least of all the faithful, and yet who went out to proclaim the name of Christ. I think that's the place to start We don't earn Jesus. We surely don't merit Jesus. He comes to us by His grace. And so then we have eyes to see and we worship Him and we praise Him. I want to close with just reading one portion that is attributed to Patrick um, and a little bit of of background to it written by Stephen Nichols here as we think about Patrick's, Patrick's day to day. He says, Here in part, he says, we remember Patrick best, not in the legends and fables and, you know, the leprechaun, you know, all the stuff. He says, we remember Patrick best, not in the legends and fables and not in the ways his holiday tends to be celebrated. Perhaps we remember him best by reflecting on the St. Patrick's breastplate, which has traditionally been attributed to him. The word breastplate is a translation of the Latin word lorica, a prayer especially for protection. These prayers would be written out and at times placed on shields of soldiers and knights as they went out to battle. St. Patrick's Lorica, this prayer, points beyond himself and his adventurous life. It points to Christ, the one he proclaimed to the people who had taken him captive in Ireland. St. Patrick was not about his life, himself. He was about the worship of the one who gave him life, Jesus Christ. Listen to um, at least a, a part of this, this breastplate, this prayer, this lorica here. And you'll recognize, some of you will recognize this. He writes, Christ with me, Christ before me, <clears throat> Christ behind me, 
Christ in me. Christ beneath me. Christ above me. Christ on my right. Christ on my left. Christ when I lie down. Christ when I sit down. And Christ when I arise. Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. That sounds a lot different than our St. Patrick's Day, doesn't it? He goes on, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me. Christ in every eye that sees me. Christ in every ear that hears me. So let me call you from our eldest saint to our youngest here to worship Jesus. Worship Jesus who delivers us from sin, like the Passover lamb, and who provides us the bread of life, eternal life. To worship the Savior in praise and adoration. To worship Him by abiding in Him and feeding on His Word. And worship Him in obedience. May we prioritize praise in our life, for He is worthy of our praise. And may it be what fuels, and it's a borrowed phrase, but what fuels our mission is our praise of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord, would today that each one of us, including my own heart, be no more content with the things of this world and how they're fading away. But may our eyes be drawn again as Patrick here did that in this little poem, that Christ be all in us, that our boast would be, as Paul talks about, my boast is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I'm not boasting about my position my work, my things, my family, but I'm boasting that Jesus Christ is a Savior of the world of sinners and He gives us bread to eat, true bread, truly satisfying life in Him. And so I pray, Lord, congregationally that You would work in each of our hearts. If we have drifted from Your grace and from worship as a priority in our lives, And Lord, each one of our hearts is, as the song says, prone to wander. Draw us back to you, Lord, to worship you alone for you're worthy. To no longer see in this world its pleasures, but to see our greatest joy in you. So help us, Lord. May we see trials, things that are not going well, as your, your pruning to bring us back to say, this world is fading. You are not. You are steadfast. And so, Lord, work amongst us. May we be a people that do go out from here. May we be a people that desire to make disciples and proclaim your name to the world, but doing that not out of self-discipline and duty alone, but out of joy to say, oh, that the nations would be glad in the Lord too, for I have found the fountain of life. So help us in that.